priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Let's pray. God, we just ask for your help this morning. Uh, we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Jesus and his disciples, they have eaten this Passover meal. Uh, they have retired to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where Jesus is interceding in prayer for them. Uh, and as we left off last week, and just want to thank Tyler for stepping up and preaching, um, we are on the downhill slope uh, to the Mount of Calvary, right? Jesus uh, wakes up his sleeping friends. <clears throat> he alerts them that his betrayal and his arrest is imminent. And the pace, like most of Mark's gospel, we've talked about it, um, it it's going to be very quick. It's almost instant. Mark is going at a rapid pace to the cross of Christ, uh, rushing, uh, we'll see him, it seems like he's rushing even more quickly uh, than before. And so each of these episodes that we're looking at leading up to the crucifixion, each one of them are short, and you can feel as though as if Mark is really in a hurry to get us there. And this feeling is, is really best captured, I think, <clears throat> in verses 43 through 52. It's a, it's a chaotic scene once things get rolling. Um, but what I want us to do before we even get rolling into like the actual exposition uh, of this passage is to make a note of verses 51 and 52. All right. Um, did I read all the way down there? I didn't read all the way down there. I stopped at uh, verses 50, but we're actually going to read 51 and 52. So I'm going to do that real quick. All right. 51 and 52. Uh, it says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And those two verses have always freaked me out. It's just, it's just kind of weird. Um, but, 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 but before we even uh, get into, like, like I said, the actual text, I, I just want to talk about them real quick. Um, because they kind of sort of jump off the page. Uh, you know, I even left them off when I read the passage because they're just kind of like they're, they're on an island. Um, but, but I want to talk about like, what is this naked guy doing in this text? Uh, well, we are going to come back to that. We're going to talk about it. But I think it's worth addressing uh, some of the mystery because uh, there's a ton of mystery around these two verses. And, and I probably got off on a rabbit trail when, when I was preparing uh, this week. But uh, just to get it out of the way before we even get into the text, this part, verses 51 and 52, you know, it only occurs in Mark's account of Jesus' arrest and it does raise a curiosity about the identification of who this young man is. Um, so the standard guess, what most people think, most people think that it's actually Mark himself, the, the, the writer of this gospel. 
Um, that he is somehow putting himself into the action here, and it's kind of a way for him to put himself into the story. Uh, but it's also a way, I think, to even maybe say that, hey, even, even I deserted Jesus, right? Uh, so, so to not let him off the hook, but, but you know, I was there, and I left just like, every, uh, just like everybody else. Uh, we're not sure about that, uh, that it would be Mark. In fact, uh, one church father said that, you know, Mark wouldn't have been a disciple at the time of Jesus's earthly ministry, uh, that his discipleship came later. Uh, so he said that it's unlikely that it would have been Mark. So there's a lot of speculation around that. Some would say it's just one of the disciples um, and, and, and he was the last one to flee and he just isn't named because we know that Peter's the one here that cuts off the servant's ear and Peter isn't named. Um, it's just one of the disciples, they would say. Some will say it's even the rich young ruler. Uh, if you remember that story, well, that was about four chapters ago. Bottom line, uh, we don't know who it is, uh, but what is interesting about this little scene in verses 51 and 52, um, despite the fact that it really does feed into the tension of the moment, if you can kind of read into that, is that it has all of the markings of an eyewitness account. And that's what I'm like most excited about. Um, tradition tells us that Mark's gospel, in many respects, was the eyewitness account of Peter. Uh, that's what most people think that it was um, that, that that he that Mark is recounting all of the things, uh, or, or that Peter is recounting all of the things that he saw in, in Jesus's earthly ministry, and, and he's telling Mark this that Mark is the one that's writing it down, uh, but it's based on Peter's account mostly, and so it almost sounds like uh, that there was this naked guy there, uh, and, and that we don't know who it is, and Mark is writing it down, and it, it, you know it's just really too weird uh, to be made up. It's too weird to have been invented. That's just an odd uh, thing to put in the story. And, and, and I just think it has all of the earmarks of someone who was there and who saw that. Um, not being able to put all the names to the faces, uh, but, but you know, it's just a wild scene what's going on here. Uh, but I think it really just lends itself. These two verses just really lend themselves um, to, to the historicity of the Gospels, right? It really supports the truthfulness of the Gospels because why just add it in there uh, if you didn't see it? Uh, you add it in there because you saw it. And, and, and we have a strange scene included here. And, and incidentally, um, all of the dirtbag things that the disciples do there, uh, for people that say the Gospels are conspiracies on part of the early church, it just makes no sense. Um, that they would be covering up, that they would be covering up all this stuff, right? Uh, but but they are obviously being honest and they're being transparent about their accounts. Um, but it is strange, <clears throat> and 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 what the two verses uh, at the end do is, is they mainly they they also heighten the tension of the scene, the action in the moment where everyone is running overwhelmed with fear and passion except Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus stands out in this scene, uh, not simply because he's at the center of the action, but in, he's really in contrast to everything that is swirling around him. Remember, there was a time when, when they were in a boat and a bad storm was approaching and everyone was freaking out. 
Uh, but what was Jesus doing? He was sleeping. And later, uh, the, the, a true storm is approaching, right? Jesus' arrest and, and execution by the state. And they're in the garden, and Jesus is awake while everyone is sleeping. The tables have turned a little bit. And now in this moment, when the disciples have been roused, uh, when everyone is freaking out, Jesus alone is standing above them all. You know, he truly is um, the worthy king of kings. So I want us to look at three examples of Christ's supreme worthiness from this text uh, because this scene shows us the stark contrast of human sinfulness and Jesus' holiness. So often our, our desires, our compromises, our sacrifices, uh, they, they don't have Jesus at the center of them as, supreme, um, as supremely worthy. Uh, so the first contrast we're going to look at is is in Jesus's or is in Judas's betrayal, uh, which is a sobering reminder for our first truth. Jesus is worthy of the greatest desire. Jesus is worthy of the greatest desire. That's our first point. Judas's priorities um, aren't subtle. He has practically been telegraphing this moment. Uh, Jesus predicted it, uh, but Judas has spent no time denying it, has he? Uh, you know, unlike Peter, what well, well, Peter, Peter said, I'll never deny you. Like, I'll always ride for you. I'm ride or die. Uh, there's no parallel uh, of Judas saying, you know, I would never sell you out. You know, there's no parallel that Judas is, he's trying to play it cool. Uh, but we know that his desire is about money. It's about control. Uh, because back in verse 11 of this chapter, we're told the promise of money set up Judas's desire to betray his Lord. And that fatal trajectory really culminates here in verse 33. Let's look at it again. Verse 33. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, This one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. This kiss and calling Jesus Rabbi uh, was really like a, a, a kiss and calling someone Rabbi. That was a customary sign of, of a disciple and his master. But it's a lie. It, it's uh, like the boys on my basketball team say, it's fake love. Judas is showing fake love. And, and Judas does this, we are told, uh, for just 30 pieces of silver, which we discussed um, um, a few weeks ago, not really a whole lot of money. It's not pennies, uh, but it certainly isn't enough to trade in your allegiance uh, to the true king of Israel. But when your desires are disordered, uh, you will see worth in unworthy places. When your desires are disordered, you will see cheap things as being very costly and costly things as being very cheap. And I wonder if Jesus is communicating this truth in a subtle and an ironic way. Because, you know, obviously Jesus knows everything. He knows that Judas is a greedy dude right out of the gate, right? He knows everything about Judas, and he puts Judas in charge of the money. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 6 tells us that Judas is in charge of uh, the finances of the disciples. He's the, he's the treasurer. Uh, why would Jesus let that happen? 
I think maybe to show us that, that, that maybe even Jesus holds money loosely. And while uh, Jesus is obviously not endorsing uh, greed, he, he has orchestrated this entire thing as the Lord of the universe. Uh, maybe uh, Jesus wants to show us that we should hold money more loosely. Um, to bring to the surface how even our greatest earthly treasures are minute compared to his glory. There are so many biblical scenes that, that point to this truth. I'm thinking about the parable of the man who sold everything he had to go uh, get the to, to, to go get the to, uh, the field where the treasure where the treasure was buried. Right? He sold everything he had to go buy that field where where treasure was buried. Or what about the parable of the man who sold everything he had to get that one priceless pearl? Uh, but the most heartbreaking is, is probably the ones where a man uh, doesn't see the, the all-surpassing worth of Jesus. You, you remember four chapters ago, Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus meets the man that we know as the rich young ruler. And, um, you know, what does he say? Sell all you have. Remember, uh, Jesus said, sell all you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. Uh, Jesus wants him to trade his great treasure for the greatest treasure of, of Jesus himself. But Mark, what does Mark 10 tell us? Mark 10, 22 says the man, uh, when, when Jesus hit him with that, the man was sad. Uh, he was grieved. He was dismayed. And in the very next scene, what does Jesus say? He tells his disciples, he talks to them about how hard it is um, for, for, for the one who has wealth to enter into the kingdom of God, uh, which is really a startling pronouncement. Uh, and, and we should apply that well. I think we all kind of get freaked out. Like, I'm, I'm, I was reading it like, dang, we just got a new car. Um, you know, well, well, what should we think about that? Um, but, but, you, but the thing is, you may not have a lot of money, but your wealth is somewhere. You see what I'm saying? You have a treasure somewhere. And then that's, that's the principle. There is something that you value and something that you treasure. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the principle here is, is do you treasure that something more than Jesus? The desires of Judas, they were not ordered around Jesus. Money was his God. Money may not be your God, but the point still applies to us. Um, our desires reveal our true object of worship. What are you tempted to pursue? You know, you know, what do you crave? Uh, what do you long for more than the preciousness of your Savior, right? He alone is the, Jesus alone is the antidote to idolatrous uh, desires and idolatrous actions because only he can satisfy and only Jesus can give us joy. Jesus alone is worthy of your greatest desire. Second point, Jesus is worthy of the greatest passion. Jesus is worthy of the greatest passion. Judas has clearly betrayed Jesus at this point. He no longer identifies as Christ, as a Christ follower uh, at this very moment at least. Uh, these seconds, uh, the other disciples, they might still identify as, as followers, which explains what happens next. In verse 47, it says, um, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. His ear. And we know from John's account uh, that the servant's name is Malchus. Uh, and we know that the one with the sword is Peter. Um, he's, you know, and, and we know that Peter, Peter's a passionate guy. 
You know, you can tell when you read the Gospels, Peter's a passionate guy. A lot of times he speaks when he shouldn't speak. He's constantly jockeying for position. Uh, he's jumping out of boats. A lot, a lot to appreciate about Peter, though. Uh, he, he even tries to rebuke Jesus at times, uh, doesn't he? Um, that, that's just who he is. And, and here, uh, his passion really gets the best of him, though. His passion is evidently about uh, worldly notions uh, of the kingdom. We can assume that, that Peter is still wrongly envisioning what the Messiah is supposed to do by his actions right here. In Peter's mind and in many of the Jews' minds, uh, when the Messiah comes, um, he comes with swords. He comes with stallions. Uh, they think the Messiah should violently overthrow uh, the Roman government and cast them out. Uh, so, so Peter might be thinking in this moment, you know, um, yeah, Jesus is saying that we should be kind and loving. You know, all along, uh, Peter's agreeing with that, like, yeah, let's, that, that, that sounds great. But when it really comes time to throw down, look, we're going to throw down. Uh, I, I think that's how Peter's looking at it. So he sees these guys coming with swords, and, and, and so he's thinking, well, this must be it. You know, it, it's showtime. Let's do it. Uh, but we know that Jesus doesn't come like that. He doesn't come with swords and stallions. He comes on a donkey with palm branches. All along, he is subverting uh, everyone's idea about what the messianic kingdom ought to look like. It might seem like Peter is doing a good thing. I mean, he's defending his friend. Uh, wouldn't you do that for your friend? You would defend your friend. You would defend your spouse, your brother, your kid, if folks were coming after him. Um, <clears throat> but, but I don't really think that's a good comparison uh, because later on in the text we'll see that Jesus says the scriptures must be fulfilled. So what, what Peter's really doing right here is he's operating by his own agenda, right? He's operating based on his own ambition, his own agenda. He's looking for the violent revolution. In Matthew's account uh, of, of this actual story, we see that Jesus rebukes Peter for his actions here. And remember what he said? He says, put your sword away, man. What are you doing, right? Um, he, he, he says, anyone who lives by the sword will die by the sword, right? Um, and then Jesus, what, what's Jesus do next? He picks up the guy's ear, puts it back on Malchus's head, and heals him. Uh, that, that's, that's out of the account of Matthew. That's what the kingdom looks like. That, that, if they want to see what the kingdom looks like, it looks like Jesus putting that guy's ear back on his head. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, my kingdom does not come by worldly passions. It doesn't come by violently overthrowing your enemies. It actually comes by laying down our lives. Uh, doing worldly things uh, in Jesus' name is not the same thing as treasuring Jesus. In fact, one of the most frightening passages of scriptures uh, uh, in the scripture uh, to me, and, and if you've read it, you know, I'm sure it frightened you as well, is out of Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, uh, did we not pro prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's crazy. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who claim to speak um, 
A lot of people claim to speak for God today who claim to do things in Jesus' name. Every day you can find on social media professing Christians who are cursing their enemies, reviling their brothers and sisters in Christ, hating each other, all in the name of Jesus. All you got to do is get on Facebook to see it. Um, is it possible that our chopping off of ears in Jesus' name is no different than a betrayer's kiss? It's the uh, appearance of affection, right? But it really has uh, self at the center. I was going hard last night uh, to a Louisville fan. I mean, my thumbs, uh, I mean, gosh. And I, I was hitting them with stats. I had the analytics. I had the whole breakdown of Louisville's whole terrible program. Just, I mean, in a, in a dissertation, I was going at it. And, uh, you know, I woke up this morning, I was like, because I didn't cuss. I made it look good. You know, I, I don't do that. I, I wasn't talking reckless like that, you know. But I was, I was sending knockout punches. And, uh, and I just think, man, I, I may need to go apologize. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we, we love each other, you know, we're, we're friends. But, I mean, we were just trash talking. But I woke up, I was like, did I go too far? I mean, I was hitting deep, you know, you guys, you know, should probably just, you know, do away with your football team. I, except it was, more, um, it was more severe than that. But, um, but, but I was just thinking about that, like, like, you know, did I take this too far? Um, the, 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 the mistaking of our passion for Christ's passion, right? Like I was, like I could have said, oh, it's just part of it. We love each other, but, you know, did I take it too far? If you remember uh, when the children of Israel made that golden calf uh, in the wilderness, um, going back to Exodus, and they bowed down and they worshiped that thing. You remember? Um, they didn't, you know, a lot of people think that they, they, had, they were worshiping a, a golden calf. Like, and they had walked away from Yahweh. Uh, but, but, they, but they didn't say that they were worshiping a different God. Uh, that they said, this is how we worship God now. Uh, that, that they were still worshiping Yahweh in their view by bowing down to this idol. Um, what would it look like to see Jesus as worthy as our greatest passion, right? It, it would look like loving our enemies, uh, blessing those who curse us, being counted as rubbish if it means that we are aligned with Jesus. It, it's us handing over our lives to Jesus, uh, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Um, it, it's not bulldogging somebody at the store for saying happy holidays, you know, and you want them to say Christmas, right? We're not bulldogging people. Uh, it's loving our enemies, right? It's handing our life over to Christ. It means repenting of our ways and going in Jesus's way, right? No matter the cost. But in the end, um, when all of these would-be followers of Jesus realize their own ways are crumbling, the crisis proves devastating to them. And, and the same is true for us. Uh, Christianity is really on display um, when hardship hits, under persecution. That's when you see real faith rise to the surface. And, and, and these men uh, don't see following Jesus as worth it in this moment. He has, uh, you know, he hasn't sold them a bill of goods. He told them that this is what it was going to take to follow him. If anyone would come after me, remember he said, if anyone would come after me, he must what? 
He must deny himself, take up your cross, and follow me. He, he told them that, that, that that's, what it, that's what it would take. That's what he said. And in that day, you know, taking, uh, taking up your cross, um, it wasn't putting up with inconveniences like it means today, right? It meant death. Uh, these guys could see crosses on the outside of the city, all around of the outside of the city with rotting corpses hanging on them. I mean, they knew that taking up your cross meant death. He hasn't lied to them. Uh, he is totally honest with them. Take up your cross. Uh, but when it comes time to do it, um, what, what happens? Jesus is left alone. Uh, verse 50 is haunting. They all deserted him. They ran away. In fact, I think this is the major takeaway from that mysterious section that we looked at uh, verses 51 and 52, uh, not really who the young man was, but what he was willing to do to get away from Jesus. Uh, he was willing to be seen naked, right? He's willing to embrace his shame in that moment, um, uh, especially in that day and in that culture. It, it's shameful to be caught naked. And this young man was willing to embrace all that rather than to be caught aligning with Jesus uh, his fear was greater than his faith. And, and, and perhaps even as a foreshadow of this moment, Amos chapter 2, verse 16 prophesies, And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. In that moment, there are more precious things to all of them than Jesus, right? That's the point. He was not their greatest passion, he being Jesus, uh, which sets us up for our final point. Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. Only Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. Jesus has called his disciples to lay down their lives in order for his sake. And it's worth mentioning that tradition tells us, not, not the Bible, but tradition, church tradition does tell us that Peter, as misguided and disordered as he is in this scene and in the next, uh, goes on after his restoration uh, to great apostolic ministry, right? Uh, even death on a cross. And, and, and tradition says um, he requested uh, when he died uh, that and he, he was put to death uh, by the state that that and he was crucified and tradition tells us that his crucifixion uh, was upside down that that he requested that <clears throat> because he did not he did not think that his death uh, should be like Jesus's death right um, he did not consider himself himself worthy to die like Jesus died that's what tradition tells us P Peter found the grace to find Jesus as, as, um, as worthy as the greatest sacrifice. But, and Jesus uh, is certainly worthy of our greatest sacrifice, but ours is not the greatest, right? The Apostle Peter's upside-down crucifixion, it was a great sacrifice, uh, but it was not the greatest sacrifice, right? Jesus' sacrifice is. And ultimately, Jesus had to go to the cross because he alone is worthy. He alone is sinless. He alone could make a sufficient atonement for sinners like Peter and for sinners like you and me. Only Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. Does that make sense? Only Jesus is worthy enough for the cross. And ultimately, the reason Jesus made the greatest sacrifice is not because that we are worthy of it, uh, but because he is. Right? Because his glory is the greatest reality 
in all of existence because his name is above every name because his holiness prevails above all because sin will not have the last word and that's good news <clears throat> first verse 49 is an exclamation of this truth it says the scriptures will be fulfilled so jesus is not a victim here you know I, I, when, when you see people's reaction to uh, the torture and the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. It's interesting to how, how they view it sometimes because you just need to know Jesus is not a victim here. He tells Peter in one of the accounts, uh, one of the gospel accounts, if you remember, he says, don't you think um, if I wanted legions of angels to, to come and save me and deliver me, uh, that, that, that it could be done, right? It could be done like that. Uh, despite uh, that he is being betrayed by Judas, despite the fact that Jesus is being misunderstood by Peter, uh, despite that he's been abandoned by all, uh, uh, eventually arrested, tried, tortured, uh, he's going to be executed by his enemies in the state. <clears throat> despite all of that, Jesus is in charge, right? Jesus is in charge. He said the scriptures will be fulfilled. Um, you can't change his plans. You can't stop Jesus. And what the conspirators meant for evil, God meant for good, even for their good, right? Because some of them ended up repenting and coming to Jesus. At the cross, uh, Jesus wins the ultimate victory because he alone is worthy, all right? We will be uh, singing that for eternity according to Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb, right? All praise and honor and glory, right, to the Lamb, Worthy is the Lamb forever and ever. And while this makes uh, so much of God and, and really makes very little of us, uh, this is still really good news for us. It's really good news. You and I are not worthy of that sacrifice. We are not worthy of the cross. Um, if the most moral person in the world uh, was to go and die on a cross for us, we would be without hope and dead in our sins, right? No one could do that for us because even the best human is still a sinner. Only Jesus could atone for our sin because only Jesus is a sinless Savior. Only he is a spotless sacrifice. Only Jesus could offer a sacrifice that satisfies the just wrath of God. And it's only in Jesus then that we find the worthiness to enter into the holy presence of God. Jesus alone is worthy, and yet he welcomes sinners just like us into his worthiness, and that's good news. He is willing to be treated like us. Now, now look at verse 48. <clears throat> says, says criminals, right? Criminals. He is willing to be treated like a criminal so that we could be treated like him. Right? He's willing to be treated like a sinner so that we can be treated like him. And this isn't the first time the holiness of God uh, ran people out of a garden. In, in this garden of Gethsemane, uh, we have a young man fleeing naked here. But remember what happened back in the garden of Eden, right? Having chosen something other than their Lord, um, putting uh, trust in something other than their Lord treasuring something else adam and eve they're they're naked they're left naked they're left ashamed and they are exiled 
and, and, and they're sent fleeing. But, but, but what does the Lord do? He covers them up with, with animal skins, right? Just as the Lord covered Adam and Eve uh, with the skins of sacrifice, he uh, can cover our sins with a great sacrifice. He alone is worthy. One commentator said, Christ is so in love with holiness that at the price of his own blood, he will buy it for us. Our shame has been covered by the righteousness of Christ. He's better than money. Uh, Jesus is better than politics. Jesus is better than romance. Uh, Jesus is better than, than all your worldly passions and desires. Jesus is above it all. He has died in our place that we may die to all of that other stuff and live in him and that we may be saved forever. Let's pray. And God, I pray that, that our greatest treasure uh, will be Jesus. Um, he has lived the life and died uh, the death and, and has conquered the grave all for us. Uh, he rose from the dead so that we could be raised to new life in him. And even though we're not formally observing um, Advent in our liturgy, uh, it is the first Sunday of Advent and we do uh, recognize and observe <clears throat> that the King of Kings, uh, the the, ho the Holy God of Israel, became man in the flesh, came to earth, uh, suffered, uh, was tempted in every way, um, and, and he remained sinless, uh, conquering sin, conquering death, defeating all of our enemies, um, making a way for us to be united uh, to God by faith. So God, I pray that like I said, that Jesus would be our treasure, that, that he would be our ultimate gift, that our passions and our desires uh, would be aligned with him, uh, especially in this Christmas season. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.